Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Kirk Meagle, host of Politics and Polemics on the New Books Network. I also host my own podcast called Independent Thought and Freedom, where I interview some of the most interesting people from around the world who are shaking up politics, economics, society, and ideas. You can find it in the iTunes Store or on any one of your favorite podcast providers. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, Are you an academic that wants to get heard nationally? Check out my free training on three steps how to use your intellectual authority to become a media personality at becomeapublicintellectual.com. That's becomeapublicintellectual.com. You can find the links below. And now, on to this week's episode. Hello. Today my guest is Mark Sedgwick author of Key Thinkers of the Radical Right, Behind the New Threat to Liberal Democracy. Mark Sedgwick is a British historian specializing in the study of traditionalism, Islam, Sufi mysticism, and terrorism. He's professor of Arab and Islamic studies at Aarhus University in Denmark and chair of the Nordic Society for Middle Eastern Studies. He was formerly secretary of the European Society for the Study of Western Esotericism. Esotericism. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Good to be with you. Yes, yes, it's it's a pleasure. I look forward to a, a really interesting discussion. Uh, you know, not only this book, uh, which I think is very important, but really your whole body of work is fascinating, and um, the line of inquiry that you've been pursuing over many, many years. But could you just, you know, I gave a little introduction just now, but could you please? Tell us a little bit more about yourself and sort of what got you interested in this subject. Yeah. And also, I mean, people may be wondering why a professor of Arab and Islamic studies is is working on the radical right, which is um, is not really the same subject. The, the, the fact of the matter is I'm, I'm a historian by training, and I started off working on the history of Sufism. And during my PhD... Uh, I was really looking at a Sufi order that started off in in the Hejaz, in, in the Arabian Peninsula, and then moved out through Southeast Asia. Uh, but as I was working on this, I heard about the branch of a Sufi order in Milan. And I thought this was this same order that I was working on. In fact, I thought this was so interesting that... Uh, you know, Cairo, I was living in Cairo, it's not too far from Milan, direct flight, so I just went and, and had a look in Milan. And uh, there I met a guy who was running this Tariqa, this Sufi order, who was an Italian who uh, was started talking to me about René Guénon, the, the, uh, the great traditionalist author, and also told me about how he himself had got into this whole subject of traditionalism, which was through meeting Julius Eberle. 
who is also one of the the, 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 the leading traditionalist authors. So mm-hmm. through this, when I was trying to study a Sufi order, I got into this whole world of, of Evola and traditionalism and so on, which I found so interesting that, that I've been working on it ever since. Right. So it's kind of a, um, an accidental discovery um, uh, when working in one field and you made this um, you know, connection, this, this esoteric connection. Yeah, I mean, plus it's you know it is actually uh, still connected to to my uh, to my sort of main Islamic field because there are these overlaps. I discovered afterwards it wasn't just this one order in 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 Milan. There are multiple overlaps between Islam today, which is a global phenomenon, and uh, what's happening in the esoteric world. And also in in these political worlds. Yeah, yeah. Well, if, if we start off from the, your current book that we'll be focusing on in uh, this particular interview, key thinkers of the radical right, I suppose we should perhaps, like you know, good academics, start off with a, a definition. Uh, you know, what is the radical right? And, you know, why is it important? You know, people have been hearing about, you know, the alt-right and you know, Donald Trump, Brexit, you know, how, how does that all fit into it? Yeah, well, I mean, in a sense, uh, the radical right and the alt-right are, are almost the same thing. The, the term alt-right tends to be used more in the North American context and the radical right is, is uh, a, an American, a European, and now, quite interestingly, also a South American and Russian phenomenon. Um, so the, 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 the alt-right could be understood as the North American section of this larger phenomenon of the radical right. Uh, radical in the sense that they are criticizing the whole system. There's one understanding of radical which refers to the, the, the origin of the term, referring to a root, right? That the radicals are people who are looking at the roots of the system and critiquing the roots of the system rather than uh, looking at, at, at the way the system is operating rather than looking at the uses or the abuses of the system. So that's the sense in which they're radical. The sense in which they're right uh, is less easy. I mean, Sometimes they describe themselves as right, but sometimes they don't. And quite where the right is and what the right means is actually one of the things that some of them are are, are questioning, because we used to have this neat left-right division, which in many countries' politics, you could pick to point to a, a, a nice big centre-right party and a nice big centre-left party, and they disagreed on certain economic questions, on certain social questions, and and that was all nice and easy to understand. That system is falling apart everywhere in national politics, and these these radical right people are challenging that system as well. some of them will actually say we are neither right nor left. 
where where a, a third force or a, a fourth force. So placing them on the right is is less clearly correct than than calling them radical, but at least they're certainly not left and they're certainly not center. So if we're operating with that sort of a system, we have to put them on the right. The, the importance of these people nowadays, I mean, you mentioned Donald Trump, you mentioned Brexit, is increasing, I think, precisely because of the way that politics everywhere is changing, that the, the, the old centre parties are losing their support and uh, that new parties are coming in. Now, this is something that's happening for many, many reasons, and the the ideologies of the of the radical right are not themselves driving this process, I think, but they are certainly benefiting from this process, and they may be contributing to this process. These these guys we're talking about in today and and that are in this this book on the key things to the radical right. They are mostly quite serious intellectuals. And Donald Trump does not, as far as I know, read difficult, serious intellectuals. Mm. I don't know how many people who were behind the behind UKIP and then Brexit are are reading these serious intellectuals. But there are people who are close to some of these figures who are reading these. And of course, in in the United States. The most famous person uh, in this respect was Trump's former advisor, Steve Bannon. Mm -hmm. And Bannon, we know, has been reading these guys and is inspired by them. And I think there are, you know, there are other people out there like Bannon, not themselves the front rank politicians, but people who are working with or behind the front rank politicians who are, are reading these thinkers. Yeah. It's almost like uh, George W. Bush never, probably surely never read Leo Strauss, but he was surrounded by people who did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, um, I, think, I think to have a, to have a, a president who, who, who spent his or her time reading difficult theoretical texts would be a bit worrying. I don't think that's what an elected leader is really meant to do. But that's far right. too. <laughs> Right, and, you know, you talked about the uh, the falling away uh, of the sort of old right and left distinction. Which now that I I am looking back on on things, I wonder if it was ever adequate. But certainly now it's 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 exposed for being inadequate, and especially for a lot of uh, listeners who are mainly in America, although we do have listeners from all over the world. But um, um, I you know. In the United States, the right, what is considered conservative is sort of capitalists, you know, and uh, I don't know, corporatists and big business. And, but that's not what the radical right is at all. In fact, uh, I, I remember when I first came across just European conservatism, I, I was uh, pleasantly surprised and also shocked that uh, – you know, there's a whole anti-capitalist tradition on the right that you know is is hardly even understood in the United States, and and this is the kind of right wing that uh, uh, this is a tradition that that the right you're talking about sort of fits in. Am I correct? 
Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely correct. I mean, in fact, in Europe as well as in the United States, the sort of centre-right parties do t- tend to identify with business interests and 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 so forth. But these these key thinkers of the radical right are not particularly interested in business, and in fact, they do tend to be quite critical of the capitalist system of of finance. Uh, and one of the things that they're all most critical of is is what they call a global elite. And they tend to identify the global liberalism that they are critiquing with the global capitalism. And several of them are arguing that global the global elites and global capitalism and global liberalism is just a front for the financial interests of international finance. So at that point, one's beginning to hear things that that one would probably expect to be hearing not from the right, but from the left. That's right. I mean, in in fact, um, when one, I mean, I I started to, I I came to understand um, these thinkers myself through the left and through the radical left, um, you know, like for instance, when you read Marx, um, uh, his his criticism. Well, w- one of the things he praises capitalism for is for undermining traditional society, right? And then now socialism is supposed to be after that, and communism after that. But um, the 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 traditionalist right or the reactionary right or, or is a is at one with Marx on that, that capitalism does destroy traditional society, you know, uh, hi- hierarchy, religion, tradition, belief, uh, etc., monarchy. And, uh, and so, so they are critical of capitalism uh, for the same reasons in that sense. And, and um, I mean, when I, at one point uh, in my own reading and thinking, um, through anarchist literature, through um, people like, oh, um, uh, is it Guy Debord? No. Well, um, I, I can't remember his name, but Revolutionary Violence from France, George Sorel, um, and, and, and these type of people who are considered on, on the left, uh, they had a lot of affinity with the right. So it's kind of like the anti-liberal left had a, a, lot, of, a lot in common with this radical right in the critique of of global capitalism, and, th- and there's this way that the radical right and the radical left, in their critique of liberalism, is very similar. Uh, would you agree? No, no, I would completely. I mean, in fact, there've been there've been a couple of occasions on which, uh, at least a couple of occasions, there are two occasions that I know of, when people on the far right have actually got into contact with people on the far left. And said, "Look, you know, basically, uh, we should be fighting together." Um, neither of these occasions really led to anything, but the fact that that the conversation could even start illustrates very nicely what you've been saying, and also illustrates one of the problems with uh, with, with with using this left-right division because at a certain point they actually they actually come together. I mean, something I something I should add though is that I think. Although the radical right, like the Marxists, see capitalism as destroying tradition and, and religion, uh, whereas for Marxists, this 
is a good and useful destruction that paves the way to a desirable future. For nearly everybody on the radical right, this is an undesirable and unfortunate destruction. So they're both, they're, they agree about the process, but they disagree about whether this process is or is not desirable. Yeah, and uh, and to to move back uh, toward your book, I mean, you did mention um, in the book that two of the thinkers that you were not going to cover um, because they're covered so widely elsewhere um, are Nietzsche and Heidegger, and that that's very important because both the right and left. Um, uh, you know, admire these thinkers, or at least elements of the right and elements of the left uh, admire these thinkers. And, and um, yeah, so I, I suppose with that, could you give us, a, uh, so now that we understand what we're talking about in, in this radical right, that it's not just a typical sort of capitalist um, big business at all, it's something else. Um, could you give us a sense of the evolution of the radical right thinking, you know, some of the key thinkers, how they're similar to each other, how they're different. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, I think, I think that for this, it's useful to go back uh, to the French Revolution. My, my book doesn't go back to the French Revolution, but if one wants to understand this, one way of conceiving of it is in terms of the French Revolution and reactions to the French Revolution and the struggles that go on throughout the 19th century, which are in, in some ways just a continuation of the, of the French Revolution. And if, if in the 19th century one can think of things in terms of a sort of liberal Republican side struggling against a church and crown side, the, the church and crown side is in some ways the, the beginnings of, of this phenomenon. That was then, and the First World War changes things, or alternatively certain things that happening around that time, like the transformation of society by industrialization, the creation of mass society, whatever. Certain things that are happening around the time of the First World War and or the First World War itself changes things so much that that old 19th century right of, of church and crown ceases to be relevant. And, and there are a few survivals here and there, but basically it, it just withers away and, and disappears. So the today's radical right starts immediately after the First World War as part of that which replaces the old 19th century church and crown right. And after the First World War, we have coming into being two groups or two types of, of radical right movement. One of those groups is what we nowadays call fascism, historical fascism, the Italian fascists, the Nazi party, and so on. They were part of what happened because of the things that has happened in the First World War because of the way that society was changing. But the the, the Nazis and, and the Italian fascists were not the only guys around. They, they, were the, they were the big guys. They were the guys who succeeded. 
and they were the guys who who then made an appalling mess of things. Uh, and and you know, in the case of the Nazis, uh, words words begin to fail to describe how 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 badly they did in the end. Mm-hmm. That is one of the reasons why, after the Second World War, that first type of post-World War I right has really become as irrelevant as the Church and Crown people have become after the First World War, because you know, nobody in their right mind wants to recreate the Holocaust. And mm-hmm. anything which is in any way touched by, by that so these appalling events, nobody in their right mind has, has, uh, wants to have anything to do with. So what happens then is it's the second category of interwar thinkers who were not Nazis and were not fascists and who were the less important guys at the time. But after the Nazis and the fascists have been removed from the picture, these, these early guys into war guys suddenly assume a new importance. And the, they, this is people like Julius Eveler, whose name has already come up. The, these are the people who are really the basis of today's liberal rights. So that's, that's the first phase, I beg your pardon, who are the, the basis of today's radical rights. These, that's that's been the, the first phase of the history of the radical rights. We've got a second phase uh, in the 1960s, 70s. Can, the, can the I just group? ask you one yeah. thing? Um, so where does um, Oswald Spengler and the decline in the West fit into what you've described so far? Yeah, well, I mean, Spengler's actually writing during the First World War. Uh, he's read immediately in the aftermath of the First World War. So... His, his idea of, of the decline of the West is one of the fundamental ideas of, of the radical right. In some ways, of course, it's not actually what he was saying. Uh, and if you read the decline of the West, you discover that he is considering a future in which the West will have had its time. Uh, because he sees civilizations as rising and falling and so on. But the way, the way that's understood by many people is by saying, you know, first, it's First World War, oh my dear, uh, oh my goodness, oh dear, the West is now in decline. And that's one of the fundamental ideas behind, behind the rest of the world. And, and he, so he's, he certainly is, is one of the most widely read persons that can be considered, um, you know, part of, I don't know if you want to call it the canon of the radical right, but you know a lot of people would be familiar with his work, if not Evola or or anybody else, but they would know. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, of course, somebody else from that period who who's who's quite widely read, I think, is Carl Schmidt. Yes, and yeah, I mean, you know, there there are people on the left as well who are, who are reading Carl Schmidt. Um, I mean, Carl Schmidt is much, is a much more difficult. Author in in many ways, he's, I mean, he's, 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 he's got a much much more complex ideas, a much more complex work. But uh, yeah, I mean, he he's he's quite widely read as well. Julius Eveler is a bit of a specialist case, and the the other one who I think is one of the great classic thinkers here is is Ernst Junger, 
uh, who I think is 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 less widely read, uh, certainly outside Germany. But I mean, coming back to the to the question of the of the evolution, that's you know that's our interwar period, and and then we have a new phase, uh, as I was saying in in the in the sixties and seventies. The sixties one thinks of as the period in which uh, all, all sorts of leftist ideas were, uh, were, were were being more and more widely received. But at the same time as those leftist ideas were, were doing very, very well in the public sphere, there was also uh, alternative or even perhaps counter ideas on the right, which we're not getting anywhere very much in the 60s and 70s, but which are, uh, are, are getting somewhere now. And this I, is... Mm-hmm. Continue, yeah, sorry. This is, this is the point where a name like Alain de Benoit uh, becomes so important. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, um, because I, I think one of the interesting points, uh, I, I, I like to, to look at the, the interface between the, the left and right. Um, the, the new left in the 1960s were embracing things like uh, spirituality, uh, religion, non-Western, uh, well, Sufism, right? And um, yes. uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, um, these sorts of things, which very often uh, would bring them into contact with these traditionalists and esotericists who would be on the right. Uh, and and I think that, that there's an interesting... Um, uh, connection there as well. Uh, the, would you say that that would be a, an important um, part of the story here of the development of uh, of the radical right? I, I think it's I think it's certainly a very interesting development, and you're you're absolutely right that when one looks at this period, one's got west, one's got in, one's got leftist Sufis and rightist Sufis, and. Uh, I'm not, you know, they're, they're, I'm not sure how much contact there is between them. No, there is, there is contact because, you know, on the one hand, uh, they're leftists or rightists, but on the other hand, you know, they're, they're all Sufis, so they have a, a certain space in which they they can talk to each other. Uh, another way, of course, in which the, the left and right of this period have got something in common is that both of them are depending on Gramsci. Who you know he he was writing for the left, but his ideas about what produces political transformation were read by the new right, and yeah. and it's really important to the new right. So they they you know they might they might uh, they, they disagreed with his objectives, but they they certainly agreed with his analysis of of how change happened. Yeah, certainly Andrew Breitbart is is like a Gramscian when he, when, oh, you know, um, yeah. yeah, when he talks about the the politics is downstream from culture. That's Gramscian, um, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, I mean, I, I was even thinking of things like uh, you know, Savitri Devi, uh, the deep ecology movement, um, uh, you know, vegetarianism. Mm. Uh, yeah, the, these sorts of things that that really and and the whole critique of modern society as being spiritually empty, right? That yeah. that yeah. that is so much part of the right uh, of the radical right that I think uh, people who have a cartoon view 
of what the radical right view is, don't understand um, the radical rights, you know, um, profound, sometimes profound critiques of the emptiness of modern society, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and which brings them, you know, and, and I think that was, you know, part of, you know, the sort of existentialist left, um, uh, let's say with George Sorel and, and, and things like that in France, where they, where they would have this sort of uh, common ground, um, and I, I, I've never heard of the radical right really um, being influenced by Kierkegaard and stuff like that. But I, I do see um, parallels. I, I don't know if you've ever come across anything mm-hmm. like that. I haven't come across that, but but I think the I mean the, the, earlier on you you were you were pointing to the question of the relationship between politics and esotericism, which mm-hmm. is a question which worries quite a lot of my colleagues in contemporary study of esotericism because uh, you know they're, they're all nice liberal people uh, and they are a bit worried about the way that esotericism tends to get associated with the right. Now, mm-hmm. of course, esotericism tends to get associated with the right today. Yeah. But if you go back to the 1880s, it wasn't associated with the right, it was associated with the left. Mm-hmm. And anti-colonialism, so, etc. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. Anti-colonialism, uh, women's rights, uh, animal rights. You know, all all these causes, all these classic causes of uh, vegetarianism, as you said. So, I mean, if one asks oneself, well, what on earth is going on here? Now, which is it? The answer is probably precisely this question of critique that there's uh, an overlap between people who do a radical critique of existing society and people who are interested in esotericism. And in a sense, you know, you, you start off with a radical critique and then you might go left or you might go right or you might go left and then right or you might go right and then left. I'm not sure how many people go right and then left. But it, it, in a sense, it's the critique which is central Going through your uh, survey of the thinkers, so we went through the World War One period and the post World War One and World War Two, with Evola becoming important, and then in the sixties and seventies, um, uh, I think we kind of uh, stopped there. You were talking about yeah, uh, yeah. Benoit, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. No, I think Alain de Benoit is probably the the biggest name um, of of the sort of the post war sixties. Period. And then, I mean, after that, we then move into the contemporary period. And it, it's a bit more difficult to say what's going on in the contemporary period, firstly, because it's always more difficult to say what's going on in the contemporary period, which is one of the reasons why I trained as a historian, because, you know, in the past, it stopped moving. So you can, you can see what actually happened. But it's, it's, it's more difficult, partly because it is the contemporary period, as I was saying. It's also more difficult because there's there's now so much more going on, and this is partly because new ideas on the right seem to be benefiting from the the change in, in politics. It's partly because of developments like the growth of the internet. But for whatever reason, there's a lot more going on today, which which makes it more difficult to say you know exactly what is going on. 
and it's it's fairly easy to pick out the name of Alain de Benoit, um, and it's fairly easy to pick out the name of Evola, but to pick out the name of younger people, the new generation today, people who are in their thirties and forties, and say, you know, here is the key thinker of the current age, that can't really be done. Yeah. Yeah, you you um you you have a lot of uh, I mean your your list of thinkers here. Um, yeah, if you have uh, Guillaume Fay and Ar- archaeofuturism, Paul Gottfried and paleoconservatism, Pat mm. Buchanan. Well, he he's someone widely known and read, particularly in, in the United States. Jared Taylor, mm. Um, mm. Alexander Dugan, um, Bat Yor. Um, so these are these are I, I suppose the um, uh, I guess the eighties and nineties thinkers. Would, would you put them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, some of them, you know, you could um, you say perhaps is fairly widely known. Uh, Alexander Dugin is increasingly widely read. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yeor is less widely read, but she represents a, a stream of ideas which has been quite influential in recent years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, um, of these of these thinkers, um, I, I guess let's say, I guess we could say both modern and past. Maybe we could divide it into to two sections: ones that are, are around today, like you know, even Richard Spencer or Greg Johnson mm-hmm. or these people. Um, who do you think are the most Serious and substantial. Hmm. Well, I mean, the classic thing, because I think it has to be Carl Schmitt. You know, I mean, Carl Schmitt is a major philosopher. Um, he's not quite up there with Heidegger, but, you know, he's, he, he's moving in that direction. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you could see this by the, 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 all the different people who have, have used him and used him for different purposes. So I think he's, you know, in this in this book, he's probably the the outstanding thinker. For the for the modern period, for the post war period, I would I would pick out uh, Alain Dunois as as the the most um, the, the most substantial thinker because he and the group around him, you know, over many 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 years, many 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 people have been writing articles and books. And there is a really substantial intellectual production there. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I mentioned that Bjorn, uh, and and you know, as a scholar, I shouldn't sound too that judgmental, but frankly, that uh, is in no way serious and in no way substantial. Yeah, but she's incredibly influential at the same time. Right, right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and just to be clear, uh, Alain de Benoit is still active and he's still around. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I mean, um, he's, he's he's past the peak of of his of his productive years now, but he's still around and still important. Yeah, and and um, Alexander Dugin um, is is notable for his. Um, his actual influence on modern government policy at, in, in Russia, at least, I, I would say. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not 
so sure about his impact on on, on Russian policy. I mean, quite, there, there have been a number of articles in in the in the Western media uh, calling him, you know, Putin's Rasputin, or on one occasion, Putin's brain. Yeah. Um, I, 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 you know, not really. Uh, we don't. No, the, the, who, who is what exactly is going on in the Kremlin is not terribly transparent. But there are certain people who are clearly pretty close to Putin, uh, and and he isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, the the thing is that what he is saying fits quite neatly with Russian policy in recent years. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean to say that Russian policy is dictated by Alexander Dugan. Right, right, right. He's, he's sort of uh, outlining these, the broad outlines, I, I suppose, and, and general direction and, and sort of objective forces that are pushing policy in certain directions. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, produ- he's producing analyses that mm-hmm. fit quite well with other people's analyses and fit quite well with actual events. Yeah. Now, in terms of of this this book, um, your list of thinkers, and it, just to be clear for the readers, it's an edited collection, so it's uh, many authors speaking about um, you know writing articles on these various thinkers. Um, mm-hmm. the The point uh, you're making, as I understand it, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, it's not that you are you know, endorsing the right at all, because I believe most of these, if not every one of the uh, uh, of the people who are writing about these things are critical of them. Uh, but it's to, to tell, um, you know, centrists or people who may not have considered these people or, or others who just marginalize them and, and, um, and don't even bother to look at them. I, I think, what you're trying to do is saying is say, listen, these people have serious ideas that uh, some people take seriously, and it's not because they're stupid. There, there is there is something here that um, you should understand if you want to argue against them effectively. Is yeah. is that right? Yeah, I mean, there's something there's something if you you, you there's something that people need to understand if they want to understand what's going on in the world. Yeah, but and um, you know there there is a tendency for people to think of the right in terms of football hooligans, and yeah. you know I mean football hooligans are probably on the right, yes, <laughs> but I mean you know there, there's an awful lot more to it than that, and if you think that the right is just about football hooligans, you're not going to be able to understand what what's going on. And and I think uh, I think it's important to understand what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, w- what would you say some of the most um, I don't know w- how to describe it uh, seductive, attractive <laughs> ideas are that, that that may pull intelligent people, um, mm. you know, to that to that camp. And and if you know if somebody you know wants to uh, understand what it is, uh, what, what it is that is the draw for you know you for for thinking people um and and sometimes sensitive people who who move 
you know, in those circles. What, what would you say some of these ideas are? Because I, I think, as you say, a lot of people, they say, oh, these are football hooligans. They're racist. Mm. They're Nazis. They're, they're skinheads. They, you know, um, you know, they're just brutes, basically. Mm. But um, mm. what, you're, what you're definitely showing here is that these aren't brutes. This is something else. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that for some intelligent people, it's the very radicalness of of the critique that can be appealing, because you know it's 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 it's, it's almost you could almost call it fearless, except that sounds a bit too much like an endorsement. I mean, one can do stupid things fearlessly, right? Fearless doesn't have to be an endorsement. But but it can you know it it can be it can be very attractive. Uh, I think that for people in general, uh, one of the ideas which is is very attractive is the critique of the global cosmopolitan elite, because right. you know one can see that this is a a growing feeling. It was something that was very visible uh, with with Brexit, and I think it's uh, it's it, it's somewhat visible in with in the, in the in the Trump universe as as well. Um, another another idea is the that, that's quite powerful is the way that people are talking about you know, the decline of the West. Um, or the threat of decline, you know. People, human beings are hardwired to be worried about decline and, and, and the, the apocalypse. So uh, if, if, you, if, you give, if you give form to those ideas, and if you're, if you're talking about those ideas, um, the, the decline of Western culture, uh, the decline of of, of 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 Western manhood, the decline of Western civilization, uh, you know, in, in various ways, uh, that that is going to tend to find an audience. Yeah, I mean, it, when I um, sort of first came across them and, and under understood them to you know be serious and and, and to be taken seriously, um, it was. One of the things I think was through Camille Paglia's, um, when she, she sort of introduced me to the idea of romantic 19th century romanticism, yeah, and, and the decadent movement. And so, like, a lot of these artists and poets and people who I, who I like, and most people, you know, might generally like many people and who would not consider themselves on the right in any way, um, you know, they, they have this critique of rationality. Uh, a critique of capitalism because because of its sort of radical rationality, and um, and and you know I I never understood um, anti-Semitism and, and and you know why you know, why it was such a big thing in Europe and and then when I started to read like people like Herder and and some passages of of Nietzsche and you know you talk about the um, global cosmopolitan elite. This idea of rootlessness, of, of mm, mm. not being attached to a, a place and having these sort of deep bonds of tradition and community, I started to understand what the intellectual um, 
uh, argument around it was, and and that it wasn't just merely some sort of uh, unexplainable disease. That that there was a, um, you know, some sort of substance that they were um, pushing there. Do do you see that that link with the contemporary criticism of the global cosmopolitan cosmopolitan elite back to that yeah. 19th century European romanticism? Yeah. Now I think I think I think this is this is definitely right. There's this there's this sort of competition between rootlessness and, and rootedness. Mm-hmm. And the 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 right is always on in favor of, of the rootedness. And today's right is in favor of rootedness, rooted in 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 cultures, rooted in civilizations, um, not so much rooted in particular soils. Not so much blood and soil, but certainly, certainly in cultures and peoples, and in in myth as well, in uh, in in pagan myth sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and you, you know, what I what I found um, and what I find interesting is this radical right critique of the mainstream right, because the mainstream right that is considered, you know, capitalist. Um, and let's say the the neoliberals, the free marketeers, the neoconservatives, these radical right people are very critical of them, and yeah. and because capitalism in a sense promotes rootlessness, it mm-hmm. uh, you know you move to wherever the job is, um, you uh, you know you you're not really supposed to you know, uh, it, the, the kind of liberal individual rational thinker, you know. Uh, the, which is part of you know what many people consider as you know fundamental right wing politics. These radical right uh, thinkers are v- totally against that, Indeed. and I, I find Indeed. that fascinating. Uh, well, what yeah. do you have to say about that? Well, I mean, I think I think I think you're quite right um, that you know it's 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 in some ways problematic to use the the term right. For, for two groups of people who have such different views on 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 such important questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, uh, and this I, I want to get to the subtitle of your collection here. Um, yeah, which is that uh, you know behind the new threat to liberal democracy, mm-hmm. um, what sort of um, threats do these People pose. Do, do you think you know? Because you know the big thing about people talk about Trump is that it's fat. You know he's going to bring back fascism or people like mm. Bolsonaro or mm. I, I don't know if he would be really considered the radical right in that sense. But but certainly Trump. They they talk about fascism and and they talk about the new right parties in Europe. Definitely, um, you know, with their sometimes they have explicit links uh, in the past with fascist movements or, or even the present is is that the type of uh threat to liberal democracy you're talking about or is or is it even something else? i mean I, I don't i don't i don't think that the return of fascism uh as it existed in that period is a particular risk and that's i'm stressing as it existed in that particular period if right. you look at some of the first enthusiasts of Evola's work in Italy in the 50s and early 60s, some of them were people who had been 
important in the fascist party. But that was then, you know, the world has changed. These guys, they're all dead, you know, and the world has completely changed. So history, no way is history going to repeat itself in that fashion. But uh, we, we've got people, you know, you, you mentioned Trump, you mentioned Bolsonaro. Um, uh, there, there are others, uh, there are others in, in other countries, and there are others to come, I'm sure, who mm-hmm. are certainly uh, rejecting uh, the whole idea of liberal democracy. Bolsonaro, you know, it, it's a bit like Trump, because uh, there, there is Bolsonaro's favorite intellectual, who uh, is uh, a guy called Olavo de Carvalho, who uh, is is not actually in this book because he's not much read outside Brazil. And um, you know, one one of the criteria for being included in this book was that you had to have a significant international audience, which which Olavo, as everybody calls him, does not. Uh, Olavo's background uh, is, however, very much in, in, in this world. I mean, he was, he, he was, um, he, he, he was uh, for many important years, very close to the traditionalist group that Evola is, is part of, although he was close to Ginnard and to, the, to Evola or to the writings of Ginnard and Evola. And I mean, okay, he's moved on since then. But I think these ideas are still quite important to him. So Bolsonaro is another example of this. I mean, okay, wh- why is it a threat? Um, I mean, I think I think there's the short-term threat and there's the long-term threat. And if one wants to look at the short-term threat, uh, the short-term threat is very um, very well represented. By people like Anders Bering-Kleivik in in Norway, and the the Australian Brenton Tarrant in uh, in 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 New Zealand, and you know that's uh, that's quite a lot, large number of of dead people in in both of these cases, and in these two cases, uh, well, Breivik was directly inspired by Batia Or and refers quite a lot to, to her theories. And uh, Tarrant was inspired not by that year or so much as by Renaud Camus, who uh, is somebody who, if I was going to do a second edition of this book, I think we might need a chapter on Camus and, and his great replacement theory. So there's, there's an immediate threat there. In, in, the, in the longer term, uh, I think that these the, the 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 liberal democratic order has been based on certain ideas and certain understandings that people people of my generation especially who grew up in in in, in the west with these ideas took them as as unquestionable truth mm-hmm. and these ideas are now being challenged in a very fundamental fashion uh, by these these people, and the challenge is there, you know, not just because of intellectual reasons. The challenge is there also because the world's changing. That the, the 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 world that I grew up in in, in the uh, in, in the sixties, seventies, whatever, it has changed. It has changed. So um, 
it's it's the way in which these key thinkers are questioning some of the very ideas that we took as beyond question, uh, ideas that are very, very fundamental to the uh, liberal democratic order that is the, the biggest uh, threat to that order. Yeah. You know, um, this question I'd like to um, ask you ties into um, my personal position being, you know, um, from, let's say, you know, the third world or you know, in, in the Caribbean and with um, Indian uh, roots, ancestry, um, meaning from you know, South Asia um, as opposed mm. to Native American and, and the whole um, movement of third world nationalism and, and, um, and that critique, you know, we've had a critique in the third world of liberal democracy and the liberal world order as being um, exploitative. And, you know, it's generally being considered on the left, but, uh, you know, you yourself have, have, uh, your, I mean, you got into this, as you were mentioning through the study of Sufism. So, so through, so you have these critiques coming from the third world of liberal democracy of, uh, the um, liberal world order, and and then within the West too, you have um, you know the left who are also uh, there are elements of the left that are are critical of this new world order. Um, how how do you see? Well, I guess let's take it from the the uh, sort of non-Western. Um, critiques of liberal democracy. How, how do you see, do you see any interface between, um, you know, like for instance, the rise of China in trying to remake, you know, uh, you know, even institutions like moving away from the IMF and World Bank and having this Belt and Road Initiative in, instead, you know, that the, the whole um, world order, it, it's, it's not only a, um, uh, an internal political battle within Western countries, but even between third world or developing society or non-Western countries and um, the West, which used to be powerful, you know, the G7 used to be the top countries, but they're not the top mm. countries anymore. How, how do you see, do you see any sort of interface there? I mean, there's, there is an interface in that I some of the the rightist thinkers would agree very much that this global order was exploitative. Uh, they just say that it was exploitative of, of people in the West as well as exploitative of people in the in the third world. As far as the, the changes in power that are that are happening, it says the the figure who's most interested in that is of course Dugin because he was originally a, a, a major critic of what appeared at one point to be a unipolar world. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he he wanted to see the passing of the unipolar world and is now very happy to see the passing of the unipolar world. Quite what he thinks about China has never really been clear. I mean, he's 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 been, he's, he's, he's a Russian, he's sitting in Moscow. Uh, he's interested in what he calls your, the Eurasian space, Eurasian tradition, which is, is not just Russian orthodoxy, but it's also Islam. And 
he's he's been very active in Iran and uh, even more so in Turkey, where where he has a certain following there. So uh, the the alternative to unipolarity in which he is most interested is the sort of former Soviet space plus Turkey plus Iran, and. I've never really seen him do very much in the direction of China. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, in terms of the uh, where the radical right is going, um, I with with this whole COVID nineteen uh, <laughs> and the lockdowns and and how it's just changing everything, yeah. Um, yeah. it is hard to make any predictions, but. Uh, at least before this COVID nineteen um, phenomenon happened, where did you see it going? And now with this change, um, is there any sort of um, I don't know if prediction is the right word, but but forecast that you mm-hmm. might be able mm-hmm. to even make about because they, you, one could say that definitely was on on the rise the, the radical right. Um, do, do you think it will get stronger, it will get weaker, that it will now sort of fade away because we have a whole different set of concerns? What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, as, as, as you, you seem to think too, it's, it's a bit dangerous to make projections about what the world's yeah. going to look like next week, let alone there. Yeah. But, but I, I, actually, in general, things like this COVID crisis or the First World War, or or events like this tend these 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 moments of, of break in 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 history. Uh, they they tend to accelerate things that are happening anyhow. And yeah. when I was talking earlier about you know the First World War, the First World War, and I said, well, actually, you know, not just the First World War, industrialization and the growth of mass society. Um, I think that you know it's it's likely that COVID will this this COVID series will be a bit like that as well. That it's it's going to accelerate things that were happening anyhow, rather than set things going in a fundamentally new direction. And mm-hmm. of course, I mean, when you're looking at the First World War, it's easy in retrospect to say what were the trends that were that started before, which were accelerated by it, and. When we try to look at what were the trends of a month ago, uh, yeah. you know, it, it's going to be a bit more difficult. But I mean, I, I, I think that the most important trend that was happening anyhow was this reconfiguration of, of politics uh, around the slow death of the political parties that had dominated for such a long period. Uh, in in the, the, uh, the period after the Second World War, uh, and and the growth of alternative uh, ideas, alternative parties, and also the, the growth of identity politics. And I mean, people talk about identity politics sometimes in a slightly dismissive fashion. You know, it's just identity politics, but I think I think it's completely wrong to to dismiss identity politics in that fashion. I think identity is fundamental to politics. And in some ways, one of the things that happening is happening at present is that groups which were not 
of the forefront of the development of identity politics have now joined in on this. And now, in, in gender terms, um, it, it was initially, it was about women. And now, uh, in some cases, it's about men. And <laughs> initially, it was about minorities. And now, uh, straight white males are beginning to feel a bit of a minority, and they're adopting the same sort of identity politics as as other people have been adopting in the past. So I think, you know, I think we're likely to see these trends and also the anti-global trends continue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I agree. Uh, well, what would you like your readers to take away with them after looking, after reading through your collection? I think I'd like them to take away the importance of taking the radical right seriously. Right. Uh, I, I think also that I would like them to understand that the new politics is not just about the same question that the old politics was about. Now, the old politics was about uh, how how should economics be managed? Um, how should the nation be controlled? Things like that. How should the state be controlled? Uh, how how should the nation be be, be treated in various ways? The, the, the radical right is not particularly interested in these questions. The radical right does not think that it's all about economics. The radical right thinks that putting economics, which is a means to an end, turning that into an end in itself, is the wrong approach to things. The radical right is not actually particularly interested in the nation. So it's it's more interested in, in, in other groupings. And the radical right is not particularly interested in the state either. It, it, it agrees with, uh, with with the anarchists in some ways that the state is more of a problem than a solution. So there's a tendency sometimes to see the new politics in terms of old arguments. So, for example, after Brexit, there was a line of discussion which said, "Yeah, it's, it's people from uh, it's, it's people from areas that have been left behind by economic progress." And you know, to some extent, this was true. It, it was true that the inhabitants of towns which had once lived off mining and which were now uh, in in a state of collapse, uh, were were sufficiently unhappy with everything to vote against the establishment for Brexit. That was true, but but to see Brexit purely in terms of economics, in purely in terms of the old politics, without recognizing all these new ideas and these new issues are behind it, uh, is 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 to miss a lot of the point. So. That's, that's the other things I'd like people to take away, the, the way in which the new politics is not the old politics, the way in which the new politics is about new things, not the old things. Yes, yes. I, I think that's, that's very important, and I think your book does an excellent uh, job in that. So, well, thanks so much for this interview. It's been you know, fascinating and very eye-opening. 
I encourage all our listeners to not only read this book, but really your, you know, you have a, uh, a, a collection of work. Uh, your, um, some of your other books are Western Sufism. Um, and what, what's the uh, title of the book on traditionalism? Uh, was it traditionalism? Against, against, history? It, no, it's, it's called Against the Modern World. Right. Yeah. Right. And yes. That, that's, it's, you know, it's a little bit out of date now, but it's, still an, an amazing story and the funny thing about that book is that i had no idea at the time when i wrote it how important some of these thinkers were going to become in in the years in the in the years since i wrote it yeah i i would uh, i would certainly uh, encourage people to take a look at um, at your work because you're pursuing Know, line of inquiry that is uh, important and I think understudied. So uh, thanks again. It's been a real pleasure. Equally. That's all for Politics and Polemics this week. If you like this, remember to check out my other podcast, Independent Thought and Freedom, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, if you are an academic and want to get heard nationally, check out my free training at becomeapublicintellectual.com. Thanks, and see you next week.